0: You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and had been insulted in Philippi, as you know. With the help of our God, we dare to tell you this gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know, we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We're not looking to praise for praise from men, nor from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we are delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we, we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, but at, as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe for you brothers became imitators of God's church in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffer from your own countrymen the same things that churches suffer from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap, upon their, heap, upon, heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Thanks Peter. Amen.
1: 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, do have it open in front of you, it will be helpful as we go through it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this um, rather wonderful letter, uh, intimate letter where we see uh, Paul's heart really and his care for uh, a young church where he spent quite a short time um, spreading the gospel, sowing the seed of the gospel but where great things happened because of that mission and a church was planted and grew and, uh, and many got saved. So help us to learn from that and to apply it to our lives here in Oxford, I pray. Amen. So last week, if you were here, you heard Michael Green uh, uh, start this series by looking at chapter one. And in Michael's latest book, Joy, as it's entitled, which I read and loved while on holiday, um, you will be surprised to know that in that book and in his sermon last week, he encouraged us as a church to engage in mission, specifically to engage in evangelistic mission to which he has so effectively dedicated his life, of course. And it's sometimes easier to get a taste for this by going away from home uh, on a mission, as we've heard this evening some have done and will do, it's sometimes easier to get a taste for that, Uh, and as we did as a church actually a few years ago when we went with a team of Michaels to do an outreach in Plymouth uh, and joined a team made up of people from Wycliffe and other places uh, on that trip. It's sometimes easier to do it away from home than it is here. And I'm all for those opportunities and keen to seek uh, future chances to take folk on mission. And perhaps when um, Paul and Philippa, Paul White, our new associate vicar, arrives on Saturday and starts work in September, there may be opportunity to do more of that kind of thing in future. But perhaps the real test of our missionary and evangelistic zeal is what we're doing at home. And the autumn is a time of our big push in relation to Alpha, so we need to be thinking and praying about that now. But I have noticed over the years that I've been here that the kind of um, bullying into evangelism and mission approach doesn't seem to work very well. It just makes us feel guilty that we haven't managed to do better. And so I approached 1 Thessalonians 2 where Paul obviously has a great burden for these Thessalonians to share their faith with the other citizens of Thessalonica, I, I came with a question in my mind, how does Paul stimulate evangelistic zeal in the Thessalonian church for which he cared so much? How does he stimulate that? And the first thing that I noticed, as perhaps you did as Kevin read it, was that the whole chapter is set in the context of the family. So let's begin there. And if you're going on holiday in the next few weeks or have the family coming to stay with you, then here are some life skills to apply for that as well. Perhaps you are a brother or a sister to someone. If so, what should your attitude be? Well, Paul addresses these uh, these Thessalonian Christians as brothers in verse 1, and then later on in the chapter in verse uh, 14. They are brothers, even though he didn't know them very well, but he knew they had become followers of Christ, and therefore they are spiritual brothers. And in verse 8, he says he was delighted to share with them, to share with them both his life and the gospel. So I wonder, do you share with your siblings? Both Sue and I are blessed with brothers and sisters with whom we have stayed great friends. We have been on holiday with two of my brothers and their wives, and as Sue's family accompany their last remaining aged relative on her last days, they are united In support for one another and for her and in love for her. And it's a great blessing in life to have good relations with siblings. If yours have grown cold, let me urge you to renew contact if you possibly can, because enjoying good relations with brothers and sisters – blood is thicker than water – we may find a model for how we relate to those coming to faith in the church, because in this new community we are brothers and sisters. They are our spiritual siblings. Sharing our lives seems to be the key. Are we ready to be vulnerable and to share our lives with new Christians or those coming to faith in the way in which we would in a good situation, a good family, with our human brothers and sisters? Or perhaps you are a mother to someone. Is the first thing that your children would say about you that you really love them? I expect and hope that that is the case. In verse 7, that is the image that Paul chooses to use here. When he preached the gospel in Thessalonica and young and old Greeks came to faith, his aim was to care for them as a good mother cares for her children, giving them birth, comforting them – literally in Greek it means keeping them warm, nurturing them first with milk and then gradually with solid food. Always gentle, but no doubt consistent and firm as well. If uh, that's difficult, try it on holiday. It might make it more fun for everyone, you never know. Care seems to be the key, to share openly as brothers and sisters, and to care as a mother does for her children. Are you a father to someone? What a great model we have in verse 12, it's a great verse. Start in verse 11, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. If we're fathers, do our children see us in that light as encouragers, comforters, urgers? Or are we distant, stern, uninterested unless our children are interested in what we are interested in? These are lovely words for us as fathers. Good for us to get our heads around them, to be encouragers of our children. Try that on holiday, dads, see if it works. Support seems to be the the key idea, support our children. Now, I look at that and that's the context in which it seems to me Paul is thinking as he encourages these Thessalonians. But, of course, the passage is not about family relationships. One Thessalonians is not James Dobson before James Dobson or even Dr. Spock before Dr. Spock. No, not the Star Trek Dr. Spock, the other one. It's about Paul's mission to the city and the model that it provides for ongoing mission. That's what the chapter's about. And we have our stories to tell. Our lives is how he puts it in verse 8. We shared with you our lives. We shared you our, with our story. Paul had a dramatic story to tell, but everybody's story is interesting. We have a P, a, a barbecue at the end of August at the end of Holiday Club for the PCC and their spouses and for the staff and lay readers and so on and a few other people come along. And I don't let people talk about mortgages or schools or anything like I urge people to tell their story to one another so that we, we explain how we became a Christian. And people find it very interesting to discover the different ways in which people have learnt to follow Christ and find out about Him. So we have our story to tell. And uh, we have the best news in the world to share the gospel of God, which Paul said that he shared with these uh, brothers in Thessalonica. Uh, We have great news of the Jesus who died in our place on the cross, that He is alive today, that His Spirit empowers us to live transformed and transforming lives now, as well as have the hope of heaven, Christ alive in us. That's what Paul looked at this church, and he saw the, the potential for transformation in the city, because these people that he loved and cared for as brothers and sisters, as a mother cares for the children, and as a father, he saw that they had the potential to live transformed lives to the glory of God. So let me just give you four quick reminders of how he kind of uh, and he looked at the church, and, and I think this is what he want, how he wanted them to, what he wanted them to bear in mind as they lived for Christ. And perhaps we can learn from that as we try to do that here in our situation here in Oxford. First of all, be sure, hopefully these will come up on the screen, Martin, I think, you'll Be sure to have the right motives, verses 1 to 6. I don't know if you ever got any titles? No titles? Okay. Be ready to take notes. They only had the titles. You're not missing much, actually, because... Jules has gone on holiday and couldn't find me any pictures anyway, so there we go. Be sure to have the right motives. Be sure to have the right motives, verses 1 to 6. Not everything that purports to be mission is either biblical or effective evangelism. If you're like me, you cringe at some TV evangelists. We are embarrassed when false claims are made about healing. We rail against the way that the gospel is reduced to belief in almost anything in some liberal quarters. I was talking to one person not so long ago who said to me, I think you have to believe incredibly little to be a Christian, and therefore I'm an evangelist because I make it so easy for people to become Christians just to believe that Jesus is a decent chap or something like that. We sympathize but protest when the gospel becomes only social action, or when social action is left out entirely. Paul urges the Thessalonians to be transparent, to be ready to suffer, to tell the whole gospel even if it is not fashionable or popular. Something might happen in a minute, aha, look at that, thank you Pete. very much. Pete in Poland is like kind of having only one leg, really. It's about having you back makes a massive difference to us. Apparently, Pete, Pete Scammon here told me that easy worship went on the blink for three weeks or something while I was away. Okay. Pete Gunston comes back and says, nothing wrong with easy worship. It's all absolutely fine. So, we're all all right. Everything is restored again. And now you have my title. There you are, the right motives. Very good. So, what does motivate us? What motivates you to share the gospel? What is it that motivates you? And Paul uses a powerful image. He says, we have been entrusted with it as people approved by God. We have been entrusted with the gospel as people approved by God. Now, many of the people in this church, many of you here perhaps this evening, are approved in your professional lives to do new things. For instance, you might be doing medical research. People like that, if they make a breakthrough, become the first to be entrusted with new knowledge and new ways of treating disease. And of course they need approval, they necessary checks have to be made, but imagine if they were to keep their findings to themselves. And what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians is that you, handful of new believers in Thessalonica, you have become the ones entrusted with this news for the city. How shocking it would be if medical researchers kept their findings to themselves. How shocking it would be if we keep this message to ourselves. Uh, On a lighter note, I remember hearing, and I may have mentioned this before, I remember hearing years ago a very amusing story illustrating this point from, you'll be surprised to hear, the world of cricket. Australia had a mystery bowler, a chap called Johnny Gleeson, and none of the England batsmen could work out which way Gleeson was going to spin the ball. And in one test match in Australia, the great coloured South African uh, cricketer Basil D'Oliveira, who played for England in the 1960s, was batting with the legendary Geoffrey Boycott, who was noted for somewhat self-centered way of playing. And Basil came up to Boycott between uh, overs and said, "I think I've worked out how Gleeson does it and which way it's going to spin." "I says Geoffrey, I worked it out three matches ago, but don't tell anyone else." <laughs> We are to tell others. We are to tell others. We are to be motivated because we've been entrusted with what the world needs to hear. We should have the right motive. Secondly, we should have the right manner. Verses 7 to 9, we should have the right manner. Generally speaking, we are far too silent when it comes to sharing the gospel. That would be, I guess, how most of us uh, would be self-critical, that we feel we don't speak out enough but occasionally you come across those who forget this gentleness and respect and uh, rather um, land the whole thing on you. Now I have a friend who is a, a wonderfully bold personal evangelist, and often he hits the nail right on the head, and I've learned much from him and still have much to learn, but I've also seen him cause terrible offense, not the offense of the gospel but of his manner. He can seem rude. I admire his zeal and courage, but want to avoid his pushiness, even boorishness at times. Paul is able to say here in this chapter to the Thessalonians after his three-week mission that he was neither a burden nor an imposition upon them. Wouldn't that be great if our neighbors thought that? They respect our faith, but we are neither a burden nor an imposition upon them. Maybe then they would want to find out a little bit more about what we believe so we should have the right manner. And thirdly, we should have the right morality, verses 10 to 12. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you. Of course, we feel very convicted, I feel very convicted, by Paul's ability to point to his own Christ-like example. He was able to write in confidence that the lives of both him and his team while in Thessalonica, had been holy, righteous, and blameless. Now I think we might have been able to make a similar claim after ten days in Plymouth. Our team didn't have to stay longer. I remember that we led a team, some of you were on it, a Tearfund Christians in Sport trip to Kenya uh, a few years ago in 2002, just before I became vicar here in 2002. We worked hard when we were in Kenya at being blameless amongst the Kenyans to whom we went. And I think we managed it more or less for two weeks. Two weeks is possible, but it's much harder at home, isn't it? I was really touched this week by uh, talking to one member of our church, Joan Carls, who used to live in Kenya and and farmed in Kenya with her husband before her husband died. And she told me how uh, many years ago on a mission trip to Kenya... John Stott, who died um, a week or so ago, great um, Christian teacher and writer and evangelist and wonderful, wonderful influencer for Christ in the twentieth century, John between missions came to stay on the farm with them in Kenya, I think just for three days. And Joan had kept in contact with him since then. And she said to me, she said, it was like having Jesus staying in my house. It was like having Jesus staying in my house." What a wonderful thing to say about somebody. What a truly wonderful thing to say. Well, we need, uh, we need to work hard uh, and to uh, think hard and pray hard at living the Jesus-like life with those amongst whom we share our lives. It's why I think the father analogy is so helpful. A child should have the chance of really getting to know their father, warts and all. And no human father can be perfect, and any decent father wants to be an example, a friend, an encourager to his children, even as he lives transparently before them. But if he is violent or foul-mouthed, for example, and then tells his children to wash their mouths out when they swear, they will disregard him, of course. If he bangs on at his teenagers about the need to be careful about sex, but they discover that he, in due course that he has not been faithful to their mother, then the children will not take his advice very seriously. Now, all that, of course, is very obvious. If we're going to encourage, comfort, and urge our friends to live lives worthy of God, which is what Paul is urging here, i.e., to trust in Jesus because that is the work of God. Jesus himself said that. The work of God is to believe in the one that he sent then we must aspire to live lives worthy of God ourselves. And that is a process, just as parenting is. It's a process that goes on through our lives. If we have a child, we cannot say, I will only be a father or a mother to this child when I'm good enough to do it. That's when I'm going to be a father or mother and any of you who have got children will know the awesome responsibility you first feel when you first have a child. And you do think, I'm not good enough to be the parent to this child. I'm not going to be up to it. But you have to get on with it. You have to. And so it is with evangelism. You cannot avoid being a witness for Christ. You're either a good witness or a bad witness. You're a good parent or a bad parent. You've got to do it. It is what Christians do. It is what you do. If you wait till you are perfectly holy, you will never do much personal evangelism, but as we do it, we become holier. Have you noticed that? The very fact of doing mission stimulates us to holiness of life. Not doing evangelism, not sharing our faith, leads to laxity in morality. A way to keep sharp is to keep doing the job. Lastly, we must be sure to have the right message. Verse 13 to 16, the message Paul preached in Thessalonica and elsewhere, the great news of Jesus' death and resurrection, new life in the Spirit, was passed on and received with exactly, it says here, exactly the same authority as the Word of God in the Old Testament. The Living Bible paraphrases it saying, it changed your life when you believed it. It changed your life. It was the Word of God, not the Word of man. The Word of God changed your life when you believed it. Is that not exactly right if you're a Christian this evening, if you are a follower of Christ, if you have truly been converted, truly received the Word, truly tasted the Spirit, your life is changed. It is forever changed. You can't go back. Of course, there are many in church, not least, of course, in youth work, where, which we major on in this church, who seem to be Christians but fall away, and it's heartbreaking. And I have to say, in my experience, that that is often, perhaps usually, uh, because although it looks as if people have accepted the biblical message, not just as the word of man, an opinion to share for a while, but what it is, the absolute, unchangeable, eternally true word of God, though it looks as if they received it, the truth is that they haven't. They've adopted a, a pattern of behavior. They've adopted a viewpoint. A, a viewpoint but they haven't received the eternally true Word of God into their lives. And it was very interesting tonight that uh, uh, the prayer ministry team shared with me that, that in the prayer meeting before that there might be some here tonight, maybe just one, maybe more, for whom that is true, that there is a kind of fellow traveling going on, There is a kind of, yeah, you know, I I like these Christians, I want to be part of it, but I haven't really received the Word of God, not just as the Word of man, not just an opinion that I'm considering and that I might share for a year or two, but as the unchangeably true Word of God that will shape my life from here on and that will change me and from which I can never fall away because the Spirit has taken root in my heart. There may be some in that situation tonight. If that's where you are, let me encourage you to surrender your life to Christ tonight, to receive the Word of God, the living Word of God who is Jesus himself as your Lord and Savior. Say, yes, Lord, I see that this is the Word of truth. This is the Word of God, not the Word of man. This isn't just some opinion. This is what God has given us unchangeably in the Bible to live forever. This is truth on which I can build my life. If that is where you are, let me encourage you. To surrender tonight. And when that penetrates our thick, sin-numbed skulls, we become one of Jesus' spiritual siblings. We become part of his family all around the world. We long to be imitators of Christ. We become frustrated that we still get stuck in our old habits and our bad ways, for we long to be more Christ-like. We are ready, even if we find it difficult, to alter the direction of our lives. We are ready even to suffer for him, to change our ambitions, to change our jobs, to change our material situation because the word of God has taken root in our lives if the message has really gone home. We are incensed as Paul was here, and you can see his anger flaring in these last few verses, by those who oppose the gospel or water it down or effectively crucify the Lord of glory again. He's incensed by that. For this is the best news for the whole world. It is the message that will save the world. It's glorious, it's life-changing, and it will last forever. And in North Oxford and wherever you come from, it has been entrusted to you and me. We are to share it on. And finally, as a postscript, let me just point you to verse 16. It's a very sobering and sobering uh, thought, a sobering conclusion. He talks about those who reject the message and oppose Christianity. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they also heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. We must not underestimate Even as we share our faith in love and care as parents and as brothers, we should not underestimate the terrible cost of disobeying, for the wrath of God is a reality in our world today and a future reality for all those who reject the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the joy of human relationships, and we thank you that our Christian family, our church family, mirrors to some extent those relationships. We are brothers and sisters. We have responsibility as mothers and fathers to care for those whom we know, to share our faith and to lead to faith, those who, uh, for whom we have a care and responsibility, for whom we have op- with whom we have opportunity. And we pray that you would make us a church that not only are growing as Christians, not only resourcing mission as we've heard tonight, but seeing here in our own place, here where, it's, where people know us all, warts and all, that you will see your kingdom grow and your kingdom come. For Christ's sake, amen.